Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Steve Jordans out of the University of Toronto. He's also someone who works on a software called Peer Scholar. He's been doing a lot of public intellectual work of late. So he's been putting social sciences on the map, talking psychology to many different folks. We're fortunate enough to have him here today to ponder a bit how humans will behave in the future. But before we get to any of that, Steve, welcome back to Trending in Education. Hey, Michael. Thank you. It's really great to be here. I, I appreciate the time and I, I look forward to this discussion. Awesome. Yeah. And this is your second appearance. Ooh. With your third appearance, you qualify for a refrigerator magnet. So maybe <laughs> there is another engagement in your future. It's all, well, it's all up to me though. I got I to do is. well today. But. Well, it's true. That's true. I normally ask for origin stories. You were on relatively recently. Yeah. In your own words, just give us a quick perspective on who you are so folks are caught up. Sure. When I finally went to university, I wanted to be a sound producer, a music producer. And I was on that journey, but somehow I discovered psychology and loved it. And, and somehow this prof who had a very unique testing style that asked us to make predictions about what people should do next. He loved my thinking and he said, you should be a prof. And hmm. I don't know why I trusted him. I took every bit of his advice ended up going through University of Waterloo to do a PhD in cognitive psychology, did a bit of time at McMaster doing some neuroscience kind of stuff, mm. and then ultimately ended up at University of Toronto in Scarborough in 1965. And it's been my home since. Uh, I'm very happy to be there. In 1965? Sorry, 1995. Okay. <laughs> Good catch there. I was born in 1965. <laughs> now I'll just say after that, I was doing a lot of work on memory and attention, classic, I don't know, laboratory kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But at the same time I was teaching and I really realized then that I just love teaching. And, and in fact, I love teaching big classes, which is strange because I kept hearing big classes are bad classes. I didn't mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. So eventually I, my research switched and I'm now director of the Advanced Learning Technologies Lab. And our whole goal there is to try to harness great educational processes in technologies so that we can use them at scale and, and in some cases even magnify their impact. Yeah, uh, And so that's a fun thing now. My mantra is it may be a big class, but it's going to be the, the best darn class that students have. I work hard to make that true. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember you talking really big, like upwards of a thousand. And then we touched on that too. A lot of the peer-to-peer the -peer is how you can scale that. That's part of what you've done with Peer Scholar, among other things. Yep. 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 It's, it's an alternative form of assessment. It just allows us, allows students to have really deep interactions with each other and focus on things like writing and critical thought. Yeah, even though it's 1,600 students. It basically puts them into little groups of six and makes mm -hmm. a Socratic experience for them. So yeah. I'm very proud of it and, and the impact it's having is very cool. Yeah, and you've been you've been on formative assessments uh, for years and now it seems like the rest of us are catching up. So good job by you being ahead of the curve there. The thing we wanted to focus on today in particular was what's going to happen in the relatively near future, we hope, when many of the restrictions we've had around social gathering, the social distancing is what we've talked about, which has resulted in a lot of social isolation. When yeah. those are eased up or just suddenly removed, uh, which we've seen in a couple of states in the US lately, how will we respond? And maybe I'm of the prevailing thinking. I was thinking it would be a gradual move forward and some maybe shifting of behaviors. 
But you've been a little provocative here, Steve, and good job by you on that, talking about what you're referring to as a snapback. Can you catch us up on what you're thinking there? Yeah, and, and actually, I, I have been thinking this now for about a year. I've been curious by this exact question from when this started, because I know forces on either side. So if we think of the sort of, let's do the anti-snapback, first of all. There is this study, you and I were discussing it a little bit, where they've looked at what they call one-shot learning. The most powerful learning that any human or animal shows is often associated with things that make them sick. So we've all had the uh, experience of having eaten something and mm -hmm. whether it was that or just something else, but we got yeah. sick afterwards mm -hmm. and often getting sick afterwards, one trial that happening only once can be enough for us to now av avoid. So it's called taste aversion in that case to avoid mm -hmm. that food for a long period of time. Yeah. And so that reflects a very primitive mechanism that's trying to keep us safe. That if right. something is it makes us sick, then it triggers this very quick learning. Yeah. So, oh. Just to jump in right here, yeah. Mescal, I'm looking at you from <laughs> earlier in my life. It wasn't one trial, but it was a diverse <laughs> enough experience that uh, that I haven't really gone back there. I think the research that I recall was with mice and yep. the, the taste. And unclear whether that is, in fact, a natural corollary, but from an evolutionary perspective, you could understand that if something puts us in that level of existential risk, that it is a, a powerful learning experience and maybe it does shift our behavior. So that's one idea yeah. that's out there. Yeah, it goes back just to contextualize it to our hunting and gathering days. We always say it that way as though those were equal forces. The fact of the matter is we gathered a whole lot more than we hunted yeah. in those days and we scavenged and we ate what was available to be eaten. And so every now and then we would eat something that contained a toxin and this whole mechanism is okay well, just don't eat that twice okay right. if, if you eat it once and you find that it really has a negative impact on you you probably don't want this organism to have to eat it 12 or 13 times because right. some of these things can kill us mm -hmm. uh, and so yeah really quick hey stay away from that thing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and and so now if we extend this into the covid world it's, it's a little different and this is why i wondered how it would play out waiting other human beings because they're like bags of germs that could make us sick right. to, to an extent. And so it still has that sort of disgust kind of connection, which is the, the basis of that strong learning. And I did wonder that if this went on for a long time, let's say a year of starting to feel repulsed and disgusted by other human beings, would that primitive mechanism come to the fore and, and make us want to avoid people afterwards? Right. How, however, we also knew there was counter forces. And, and the strongest of them all is the fact that we are the most social beings on this planet. Uh, the mm -hmm. only reason we are dominating the planet is because of our ability to work together and, and do things together in a way that no other animal does. And we need humans right from birth. Depending on the human, they need their parents till they're, what, 30, 40? What's the age? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Quite a while. And, and even then, the process, why this has been so hard on a lot of young people, is as children transition out of the home, they rebuild the social network for themselves to have outside of the home. Mm -hmm. And so we need these social connections. And now let's take a third factor, which is just plain habit. Mm -hmm. We've had years, decades, you know, depending on how old we all are, I've, I've revealed to you my 1965 data. <laughs> so, so for me, Do the math. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. 50 years of behaving a certain way. And now one year of quite honestly, inhibiting that those habits mm -hmm. we've spent. And that's one of the reasons we're exhausted. It, it's like we're looking at after the five-year-old and we're that babysitter and the five-year-old keeps getting into trouble and we know we got to keep our eyes on them all yeah, the time. Yeah. And that's our habits are those five-year-olds. And th this is the great snapback. In, in my opinion, 
as soon as we start to feel like we don't have to watch that five-year-old anymore, they're okay. The five-year-old will just do its thing. <laughs> and so our primitive social self and our habitual self, I think, is just yearning to get mm -hmm. out there. Mm -hmm. And the thing that really convinced me when I was thinking about these things was when it was Thanksgiving in the States, mm -hmm. the virus was at its worst. It was at, at its peak of bad, but all these people were in the airport, not a usual Thanksgiving, but pretty darn close. It mm -hmm. was pretty amazing. And mm -hmm. they were interviewing these people and these people would say things like, yes, I know it's dangerous. I know I could be bringing this back to my, my family. I could be blah, blah, blah. And they'd say, why are you doing it? And they would just say things like, I just have to see them. It's been a long time. I don't know when I'll see them again. And, yeah. and, and what they're basically saying to me as a psychologist is my primitive emotional needs are more important to me right now than this potential of risk that's a little vague and, and undetermined. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that that's to some extent a reflection of all of us. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to hold back this way of being. And I think as soon as we feel safe. Now, I'm not always sure this is a good thing which we can talk to. But yeah, if nothing else comes into play, then I think we would just go back to being the way we were being. Got it. Interesting. Yeah, because I guess I'm thinking about polarization a lot these days because we see so much of it. And I do wonder... And I think you've written about this too, which uh, I'd love to get a little bit more of your perspective. Folks who already might have been socially isolated, who already might not have been out in these congregate settings to begin with, maybe they're even phobic about it or agoraphobia. Yeah. It does feel like there will be uh, a subset of folks whose behavior, maybe it fed into behaviors that were negative to begin with. And I think they are going to be tough to reach in new ways. And then on the other side of the distribution, I think there are people who maybe have just been ignoring a lot of these proscriptions the whole time. And I think for them, and maybe the more risk-taking set, they're going to get right back out on the dance floor. But you think it's going to be fast because I'm expecting some of us to be a little more cautious, but maybe I'm just projecting <laughs> to the way I'm planning to come back. <laughs> where, where you're feeling. Yeah, I, I do think, obviously, you, you can never in psychology propose anything where every human being is going to do things. You can look at the pockets and there's whatever. So I am talking in a general sense. Yeah. And, and one of the questions, I guess you could say is if we looked at a Raptors game six months from now, would people pack in there shoulder to shoulder six months mm -hmm. from now? Mm -hmm. My prediction is if you look on TV, they will. Yeah. So on, on a whole, we will see what will look like normal old behavior. But mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely right. This experience has been different depending. I, I, I say it this way sometimes. Yes, we're all in the same but well, we're not in the same boat. We're in the same storm, but we're in mm. different boats. Mm. And, and some of us have really trying times right now, really challenging times. Some of us are really fearful. If you have a pre-existing health condition or you're of that age or whatnot, this hasn't just been about follow the rules to help other people. Mm. It's been about this thing could kill me. And if you've really felt that existential threat, I think then you're going to be a little more cautious. So, mm -hmm. so yes, I think some of us, and I don't even put myself in that camp, I don't feel a need to be out there quite so much. And so I might be a little more gradual. You bring that great live music show that I really want to see, I'll probably be out there. Yeah. Know? So so it might be a little more selective, but I think it won't take us long. Once we do it once or twice, I feel like, oh, that, that felt great. <laughs> That's yeah. what I think we'll really feel is that felt really great. Yeah. Although I do wonder about class outside and the mm -hmm. idea that things that used to be inside are now outside. Things that used to be big groups are now small groups. There are some yeah. patterns that had it just been two or three months, we probably would have snapped back because we hadn't really learned the new behaviors. And then, and also the world around us may not have changed. I live in Brooklyn. 
outdoor seating, outdoor dining isn't going to go away. It's actually better. So in some ways, even if we snap back in some of these behavior patterns, the concert that you might go to, for example, it's more likely it would be outside. So it does feel like there's a dimension to which the world has changed. I think this is the the really interesting next step to the great snapback. Now I'm starting to think of that great snapback as the background, the context with which we can work with. And if we do nothing, I think we will go back to that. But I think Mm -hmm. a lot of the things we've learned during this time, we've been very reflective and especially in the education sphere where we've literally been forced to very radically change the way we do everything. Hopefully we've seen some good, Hopefully we've had some victories along the way. Very often you don't realize that some approach is better until you're there and mm-hmm. you look back on, mm-hmm. and I could give you examples of that. And so my hope is while I predict the great snapback will be the natural thing, my hope is that in some circles we will say, we don't want to snap back. But now I think we will still be in the situation we are fighting in a, an old habit. Mm-hmm. You're the kind of person that can never find their keys and you start saying, okay, but I'm going to put them on this ring. For the next two or three weeks, you have to do that consciously. You really have to do it intentionally and you right. can build that habit. So I think that's the challenge for a lot of us. If we want to keep some of the good, if we want to keep it in there, we're going to have to very conscientiously and intentionally This is, in my mind, a a critical opportunity where we're at that point where if we don't insist on doing the changes and really intentionally making them happen, if we allow people to snap back, it's going to be really hard to get them after they snap back. In education, for example, this would be a great time to identify what are the processes that really worked and to maybe try to institutionalize some of those uh, mm-hmm. a little bit to really suggest we want these to be core parts and maybe to get some champions that are willing to carry that banner a little bit and, and keep it going. Yeah, uh, Because that's the risk. So the great snapback isn't necessarily a, a pretty picture. It's not necessarily what we should be doing. What I'm saying is this will be our natural human tendency. Yeah. And, and we should be thinking about whether do we want to go back to our old ways? Right. Do we have we learned that we value different things? And and if we have then then we need to be in control as we retransition. Mm-hmm. Because what we do in those early stages can set the new pattern, the new way of being. Yeah. That makes sense. Cause it, the other uh, social science that it draws me towards is behavioral economics and the way these market places are changing and the way a lot of organizations and universities and other concerns are starting to rethink the costs of different types of delivery. And the the three-legged stool that I talk about a lot is working from home, learning from home, and and then telemedicine, which I guess is uh, going to the doctor from home. But, But like those three things feel like going all the way back would be difficult in a lot of contexts because going digital opened up access and convenience and economies that weren't there in the previous model. So you almost needed the meteor strike to to shake up the system. And at least in those cases, I think the market may respond and then our behavior will respond to the market. Yeah, I I do think like if we just look at work from home, there was a lot of skepticism about how efficient would employees be, you know, et cetera. And I think a lot when we got thrown into this, a lot of that has dissipated. And I suspect a lot of companies are now thinking, okay, for at least some of our workforce or at least some of the time, we could have some more flexibility in how people are are 
doing their work. And, and again, this would be the time to really think that through and think about that step going forward. Mm-hmm. Learning from home is interesting because I see this so firsthand with students where I'm curious how that will flesh out because we're hearing a lot of the disappointments. So mm-hmm. we hear from the students that say, oh, I really wanted to be on campus. I like that campus experience and interacting with others. And, and I get that. And so some students are badly craving to go back to a more traditional way. But I wonder if, like the working from home, if there aren't some other students that's, that have found a way to make this work, if yeah. they have good personal management skills, and they say, I actually like this. This allows mm-hmm. me to, to do whatever. So it'll be really fascinating to see against this backdrop of the tendency to just go back to the way of being, how these new experiences we've had and the new knowledge we've gained does actually come in and, and, and shape things and, and make institutions and such a little different. Social, socially, I think we're going to snap back, but institutionally, I, I don't know if we want to. Yeah. Uh, or, and I think we should be thinking that through right now. This is the time because it's going to happen in months where yeah. we're going to go back. Yeah, I think so. I'm with you. I think, especially when you say the social component, because I, I would expect bars and music venues and stadiums yeah. to be packed to the gills, even parks. And what I'm curious about is really the market opportunities around that, where like what innovation can be layered in to those experiences, because we do think a little bit differently now about mm-hmm. things like virtual reality, other trends that were accelerating anyway. And yeah. then in some ways, even this is a very local New York statement, but even the fact that like LaGuardia airport is no longer a dump, like it's going to feel <laughs> like we're living in the future. And I feel like people who are trying to design for that are going to be bringing some new elements of a futuristic take on the public space. Because I think the way we think about public space, the fact that we think about public space so much, I don't think we stop doing that. I think we'll always have a sense of density that may tie back to that one-shot learning. Even though we generally forget about it, I think there is more of an awareness. I certainly have more of an awareness of crowds that I don't think I'm going to let up. And I think people will be designing spaces to allow for a little more room. Does that make sense? It, it, it does. And although a lot of our discussion, what I'm thinking and, and what I, how I phrase this to people sometimes is we really are two people and we are the emotional core. So our mm-hmm. limbic system of our brain, the, mm-hmm. the, the system that every creature has mm-hmm. is ancient, it's primitive, and it's there to keep us alive. That's where some of this disgust stuff may come from, by the way, that kind of learning. Yeah. And then we have the frontal lobes, which are our thinking, our rational kind of thing. And they're the new kid in town, evolutionarily speaking. And mm-hmm. they are just continually swamped by the emotion. So the emotion can just take over at any point in time. Yeah. So I think rationally and and maybe a little bit on that queasy, worry side, I could see you in a crowd where you're starting to think those thoughts. My prediction is if, if that crowd represents an activity you really love emotionally, mm-hmm. And if it especially involves people you really enjoy being with, you will find that worry will not be there very long. And that as you start interacting with people, it'll just feel, you know, when you, when you have the fan on over the stove and and you don't hear the fan after a while, but until you turn the off button and then just like angels sing. (laughs) And so, so I, that's what I predict is we're going to go into one of these situations. We're going to have that nerves, that anxiety, and then we're going to fall back into that old way of being. And it'll be like, oh, thank goodness. Yeah. Yeah, like it's funny, as you're talking, it makes me think about the way I think about the New York City subway system versus going to City Field to watch a Mets game. So when I'm at the stadium, I'll forget about it. But I just think when I'm in that high density 
thing that I have to yeah. go through. And then am I even going to take the subway or am I going to get there in a different way? Maybe people are biking more. Yep. I, I'd love to get a little more perspective from you on that. Is there anything new emerging that you're noticing? So, so the snapback is like human psychology, particularly on the social side. But yep. is there anything that it's been over a year, things change. They would have changed had we not had the pandemic. But what do you see, look into your uh, crystal ball, Steve, what do you see coming out of this? Anything capturing your imagination? Any other interesting thoughts or predictions you might have? Yeah, you can always look at this at different levels. I think institutionally, this is a great chance. There's this notion of kicking the hive. Every now and then you need you know something to kick us and, and make us step back and relook at things. And I think a lot of institutions will be doing that. I wonder if a lot of people will be doing that at a personal level as well. As you say, one of the weird things is so many people got forced into nature all of a sudden. They would go shopping on a Saturday, but you can't go shopping. Mm -hmm. And so I live right along the lake here, Lake Ontario, and there's a waterfront trail. And it's never been busier than it is now. And so once again, the question I always have in my mind is when this is safe, when mm -hmm. everything's open, those people keep coming back. That was our habit already, but will we have this in, increased? Have they discovered something that they're now going to value and prioritize? Or are, are they just going to snap back to all those other things as well? Yeah. I don't have a great answer. I do think there's some good, a lot of people... Anxiety has, at least those who've looked into it and tried to deal with it, one of the best things to do about it is exercise. Mm. Uh, and so I've heard that there's a there's more exercise going on, which I think is a natural response. And will some of us keep that? It's easier to do when you're working from home sometimes. You can schedule mm -hmm. it and do it, and you're not coming home at the end of a day and trying to exercise at eight at night, et cetera. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Maybe that'll snap back when things go there, too. But I do hope that generally we're taking this time as a reflective period. And, and in Peer Scholar, what Peer Scholar is all about is teaching students how to view their original work as a draft that can be improved and to think about that and then ultimately learn how to produce a, an improved version. I think we could almost all think we could stop and say, OK, pre-pandemic, let's call that a draft. How was I living the two years before the pandemic? Mm -hmm. Do I like the way I was living? If, if I look at that again, are there things that I would change? And maybe this is an opportunity post-pandemic to try to do some of those changes, to try mm -hmm. to implement those. But again, I'll just highlight to everybody, if that's your goal, do it right from the outset and do it very mindfully. Because if you just say, yeah, I'll maybe change this or change that, and then you start living your life again, don't be surprised if six months after it's safe, you're living the same life you were living before this. Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe that's what you want, but maybe not. Yeah. The, the area maybe we could close with too, because I was going to go towards uh, Peer Scholar with this as well, because it does feel like many of us have found new ways to connect with strong ties in ways that we hadn't before. And in many ways, the you know social media had encouraged us to get as many as possible weak ties, cast as yep. wide a net as possible and just engage in these sort of more su superficial ways. And yep. it does feel like this existential threat of the pandemic combined with the fact that it's preying on the elderly. We have to be very thoughtful about when we get time with the people we love. It does feel like that shared experience is profound. And I'm hopeful about some of those elements, at least among your strongest connections, those of us who are fortunate enough to have them, loneliness yeah. is a huge problem these days, which yeah. I know you've talked about. But it does feel like there is, in some ways, we've deepened the connection to the very foundation of our social experiences in a way that could be a silver lining in light of everything that we've just been through. 
Yeah, I think we've all learned that thing. The, the way I sometimes say it to people is I've been encouraging people to rediscover the telephone, the old school telephone, or our podcast has actually all the same qualities that I'm going to talk about. I'll say to, to young people, you, you watch Stranger Things, you see those kids on the 80s on their phone for three hours. That's what we did. And when you think of a phone conversation or a podcast, you've got the words, that's the message, but then you've got all of the sounds of the voice. So first of all, when we use the phone, we pay attention to one another. We actually attend to the phone, that's important. But then we do things like, I can say to you, man, I was out walking the other day and there was this group of people that just walked right at me and gave me no place to go. And I had to walk through them. If you just go, <sighs> some sound like that, yeah. no word at all, what that tells me is, man, I've been there. I feel what you're feeling. That's annoying. I, yeah. and, and that is the emotional and it's so pure on a telephone or, or mm. something like that. Mm -hmm. That's the connection we need. We don't get that by sharing someone's post or well, that's what emojis are. But I think most of us have realized that emojis are as contrived. You just smiled when I said, no, nobody could see you. <laughs> but when I said emoji, you just smiled right after that. And those sort of things, they tell me that you're listening, that you're along the ride with me. And that's what we need. We, we have this notion, even in teaching, instructor presence, are they there and do they care? Mm. If a student feels you're there and you care, they can get engaged. And it's the same way with our close friends. We have to let each other know we're there and we care. Mm -hmm. And I think the telephone is a great medium for that. And a lot of social media things, I hope that a lot of people have seen that's not sustaining, mm -hmm. not to our mental health. We need something deeper in terms of relationships. There's a joke. I probably shouldn't say it, but I will. <laughs> they say well, there's friends like Facebook and then there's there's real friends, which are people that will go out with you if you need them. And then there's real friends. And those are the people that will help you move a body. When you think of it like that, when you really need something and it's personal and it's embarrassing and you have someone you can connect with that's yeah. there for you, yeah. that is our most powerful antidote to mm -hmm. all these negative things that life throws at us. And so, yeah, yeah I hope we've formed those. We've seen who those people are and we carry those people with us forward. Awesome. Yeah, really good stuff. Dr. Steve Jordans, he's out there on Twitter. He's on YouTube. He's on LinkedIn. He's also making genuine connections with people. He's doing all the great things. Steve, thanks so much for joining us again on Trending in Education. I look forward to bringing you back to see how these predictions played out. And maybe there's a refrigerator magnet in it for you down the road. <laughs> all right. I can only hope. <laughs> And for our listeners, we'll be back again soon. Thank you for listening. This is Trending in Education.